Welcome to the Ad Heart Podcast, the podcast that inspires heart-first living. This is where you'll get practical tools to reduce stress, inspire creative action, and energize your personal growth momentum, along with ways to apply these tools. And now, here's your host, Deborah Rosman. Welcome to the Ad Heart Podcast, inspiring forward movement and heart-powered intention. I'm your host, Deborah Rosman. And our podcast topic today is the brain is always listening. And I think that's a very interesting concept. Uh, Since the pandemic, there's been a growing awareness that mental health issues are on the increase and need to be cared for. In fact, the statistics are a little concerning. The United States has seen a twofold increase in anxiety, depression, and hopelessness about the future. And that's even more exacerbated now by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And high-profile athletes like Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, and Naomi Osaka have been coming out on their mental health challenges, but that's making it more acceptable to ask for help. April is National Stress Awareness Month. So my guest this month, Dr. Daniel Amen, is on a mission to end mental illness by creating a revolution in brain health. He's dedicated to providing education products and services to accomplish this ambitious goal. And I've known him for a number of years. We've worked together on a number of projects and I really appreciate his passion and heart for this. He's a physician, adult and child psychiatrist and founded the Amen Clinics with 10 locations across the US. The Amen Clinics has the world's largest database of brain scans for psychiatry. And you may know him from 16 national public television shows about the brain and mental health. They've been viewed over 300 million times. And Dr. Amen is also 12 times New York Times bestselling author of numerous books, including Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, The End of Mental Illness, and his newest book just released called You Happier. So Dr. Amen wrote the foreword to Heart Mass Brain Fitness Program, Connecting Heart and Mind for Optimal Performance. He even titled the foreword, Fall in Love with Your Brain and Your Heart. And I believe your heart is always listening as well as your brain. So let's learn about it. Dr. Amen, it's so good to have you here. Hi, Debbie. Such a joy to be with you. Well, let's jump right in. What does your brain is always listening mean? Your brain is always listening to the many influences that happen to us in our society. You know, just coming out of the pandemic, uh, your brain is always listening to the news. Um, Your brain is always listening to the other people in your life. And your brain is listening to the dragons from the past that just keep breathing fire on your emotional brain. And the pandemic unleashed the death dragon, Mm. right? I mean, the death dragon sort of haunts us all, but it's mostly dormant until middle age when people realize they're going to die. And, um, and that's what midlife crises are about. But because of the pandemic and the death tolls on TV day after day after day, you know, month after month, now year after year, 
Um, the death dragon is visiting seven-year-olds, uh, mm. ten-year-olds, uh, and they were asking themselves, what happens to me after I die? Mm. What does my life mean? You know, it, and it's very unusual to have that dragon haunting such a large part of the population. But there's this science to happiness, and that's what I wrote about in my new book, You Happier, that despite the craziness going on in the world, you can be happy because it's a daily practice. You know, um, some of the research that HeartMath Institute has done with other researchers like the late Dr. Carl Prebum and others, and you're familiar with this, how the brain is a pattern matching computer. So the more we have anxiety or fear or love or care, the more the brain is always looking to see what's familiar and likes to recalibrate to what's familiar and what's familiar becomes what's comfortable. And unfortunately for many people, anxiety has become familiar. Um, have you seen in the clinics and the people come to your clinics an increase in anxiety or I, I'm sure you have, but what have you seen and noticed in terms of that habit and anxiety habit in the past few years? Well, the most shocking thing is the increased number of suicide attempts Ooh. and shocked us because we follow our patients. Uh, we do an outcome study on all of our patients. And before the pandemic, we might have had, you know, one or none suicides among our patients in a year. And the first year there were eight. And we're like, uh-oh, something wrong, yeah. something bad is going on. And I think it's the hopelessness people fear um and and nobody likes to be controlled and there was an element of that mm -hmm. uh going on early on um and so not only was the pandemic it was the political divide and yeah. the societal unrest and when you get those three things together and then you add the war in Ukraine, it's like people think everything is awful. But right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I put out on my social media channels a letter from C.S. Lewis that he wrote in 1948 about the atomic bomb. And you totally could just replace COVID-19 with the atomic bomb. Mm. And he said, I think we worry way too much about the atomic bomb because it's just the scientists have figured out another way to kill you when in fact you are already sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, you could have lived in the 16th century when the pandemic visited London every year, where you could have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia could have come and slit your throat any night. And he basically said, the point is, you're already going to die. It's what's going to happen between here and there, whether it's COVID or a nuclear bomb, um, that if it finds us, let it find us doing sensible and human things, like praying, teaching, playing darts with our friends. And I love that. Because um, do you remember when we were little that we had air raid drills 
and oh, we yeah. had to go underneath our desk. Yeah. We were worried about nuclear war every day of our lives uh, in the 1950s and the early 1960s with the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that. This is not a unique time in history. There has always been wars and fires and floods. It's how do we manage life when it's uncertain, yet it's always been uncertain, right? And there's a science to this. And in the opening of You Happier, I actually talk how happiness is not frivolous, that in fact, seeking happiness is a moral obligation. And I, Debbie, I just guarantee you, growing up Roman Catholic, that idea was nowhere to be found mm. in church or in Catholic school, that happiness is a moral obligation. Mm. So why do I say that? Because of how you impact other people. And I just guarantee you, if you were raised by an unhappy parent or married to an unhappy spouse, and you ask that person whether or not happiness is an ethical issue, I guarantee you they will say yes. And so it's not frivolous, and there's a neuroscience to it. Um, And if your brain is sleepy, you're much more likely to be unhappy. We did a big study of 500 consecutive new patients, Damon Clinics. We gave them the Oxford Happiness Questionnaire, and then we scanned them, because that's what we do at Damon Clinics. We do spec scans on our patients to understand their biology. And... The people who were the unhappiest had the lowest blood flow to their frontal lobe. Amazing. So you have them stand on their head and they're happier? I mean, how do you increase? Well, I'm talking to you. Um, I'm talking to the CEO of HeartMath. Yeah. So what does that mean? It means low blood flow to the brain is associated with unhappiness. Right. So your heart is obviously important. Uh, your brain is 2% of your body's weight, but uses 20% of the blood flow in your body. Yeah. So you don't want to have heart problems. You don't want to have vascular problems. You want to love your heart and love your vessels and take care of them. Because if you have blood flow problems anywhere, it means they are everywhere. And so there's this great dance we know between the heart and the brain and keeping both of them healthy is critical to being happy. Wow. What new discoveries, something prompted you to write this book, probably starting during the pandemic, am I correct? Or before, I'm not sure, but what prompted you, inspired you to say, I need to write a book on how people can be happier. No, it was in the middle of the pandemic. And when I read the statistic, Americans are the unhappiest they've been since the Great Depression. Yeah. And I'm like, but there's a neuroscience to happiness. And then I also thought, well, what do I want to think about for a year? (laughs) And now I filter every decision I make, like doing this podcast with you. Will that make me happier? Right. Uh, Everything I do, it's like, Will that make me happier? And hedonism is actually the enemy of happiness because hedonism actually wears out your pleasure centers. Um, so in the book, I talk about the neurotransmitters of happiness and stress. Uh, but it's 
so important to see it as a science. And early in the pandemic, I had to close my New York clinic for a while because it was in Manhattan, the epicenter of early COVID. I lost my dad to COVID. Oh, um, I'm sorry. And, you know, and I teach this stuff and, and it's really helpful. And I'm like, oh, people need this information. And most books on happiness, there's a lot of books on happiness. They never talk about happiness needs to be geared to your brain type because everybody's different. One treatment will never work for everyone to be happy or as an antidepressant or as an anti-anxiety solution. You need to target strategies to individual brains. And then the second one, which people don't talk about, is um, you've got to get your brain healthier if you want to be happy. That there's a foundational physical component to happiness. And so it was really fun for me to write. I enjoyed, uh, it made me happy. It made you uh, happy. It made me happy. So I have all these little tiny habits of happiness. One of my favorite ones is looking for the micro moments of happiness. What's the smallest thing that happened today that made me happy? And often I make my family a brain healthy hot chocolate at mm -hmm. night. And it's just a little ritual I do and I enjoy doing it. But the first sip of the brain healthy hot chocolate, the micro moment of happiness. You know, one of the things we at HeartMath teach is that we don't have to be a victim of our emotions and get stuck in the emotional loops that bring us down. We can activate the coherent rhythm of the heart to power us up, to shift and uplift and feel happier. You know, people keep gratitude journals because it feels good. It makes them happy as well as being healthy for the body and brain and learning just heart qualities that are not like supposedly just for religion, but they're really powerful heart brain synchronizers like forgiveness, kindness, compassion. Um, they make you feel good. I'm happiest when I'm being kind, when I feel kindness in my heart. It just nurtures me, as, makes me happy. And I think that's true for most of us and yet it's not necessarily well-known or taught to kids in school. Um, there's more like Sunday school, you should do this and you shouldn't do that rather than, hey, you can actually choose what you feel more than what you know or more than what you think you can. How do you address that? Do you talk about that in your book at all or something, tips like that? Well, you know, high schools haven't been redesigned in 110 years. Mm. And I was actually part of a program here in Newport Beach called High School Redesign. And um, like I've never factored that I know of since high school. Um, or I don't do quadratic equations. And it just triggered for me Paul Simon's song, Kodachrome, which starts yeah. with when I think back and all the crap I learned in high school. It's a wonder I can think at all. I'm like, why don't we teach kids brain health and mm -hmm. mental health? Because they're going to have to deal with that every day of their life. So we have a course called Brain Thrive by 25. We have a new course actually for preschoolers uh, that people can find at Amen University. Um, 
it's we need to start teaching people how to manage their minds. So the book is based on these seven neuroscience secrets. Secret number five is master your mind and gain psychological distance from the noise mm. in your head. One of the fun strategies is give your mind a name. Just because you have a thought has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. And many of the thoughts you shouldn't listen to. And it's not actually the thoughts you have that make you suffer. It's the thoughts you attach to that make you suffer. And so I have crazy thoughts. I just like don't hold on to them. Right. If they're not helpful, I can let them go or dismiss them. But that takes skill. It takes yeah. work over time. And I spend a lot of time teaching my patients to be good coaches for themselves rather than abusive parents or abusive coaches, right? An abusive coach notices what's wrong and beats you up for it, where an effective coach notices what's right and praises you for it, encourages you, and they notice what's wrong and they teach you with love. Right. Too exactly. often, people internalize the voice they're always listening to, which is hostile. And sometimes the voices we have are not just from our parents. They could actually be written in our genetic codes from our grandparents or great-grandparents. Huh. So if you look at grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, they have a very high incidence of anxiety. And I would argue the anxiety is not theirs. It's from another generation that actually got written into your genetic code. Wow. So when a mother has is carrying a daughter, she's actually, the daughter is carrying the genes for the granddaughter. So there's like three generations in that mother-daughter interaction. Because when little baby girls are born, they're born with all of the eggs they will ever have. So if grandma was going through stress before or during the time she was pregnant with the girl, the grandbabies are going to end up more anxious for no reason that impacted the grandbabies per se. And so this epigenetic road to anxiety it's just so important to know that the anxiety you feel may in fact not be yours. And I just want to say for all the people who are struggling with anxiety, and it's a lot of people, um, some anxiety is important. So the goal is not to eliminate anxiety. People who have low levels of anxiety die early from accidents and preventable illnesses. So you need a baseline level of anxiety so you don't travel the freeway at 125 miles in the rain. Or the first time a guy comes up to you, you don't tell them where you live. You, you want to have a little bit of anxiety to protect you. Obviously, too much makes you suffer. But let's start with everybody needs a little bit. And then when it's too much, heart math is amazing. Um, hypnosis, I'm a huge fan of diaphragmatic breathing, learning how to not believe every stupid thing you think, the right sense, the right images, the right uh, sounds, all can help. 
Well, these are all proactive things to take charge, to not feel like a victim, whether it's of your genetics or of your environment or of your internal process. Uh, everything that I saw in your book and everything HeartMath does is how do we take charge of our reality and not have that inner critic beating on us, which just reinforces the problems so that we can have a balanced attitude. We call it intelligent concern rather than anxiety that drains. Like what is regenerative and what is draining? That's one way in our HeartMath programs, we help people distinguish you know, their inner attitudes and approaches to life. Um, and I think all of this together, you're, what you're doing, what others are doing, what we're doing is trying to give people tips and tools that they can use to take charge of their internal experience. And how do you see psychiatry in 10, 20, 30 years? Where do you see this going? I'm pretty irritated with my specialty. Mm. Uh, you know, when I trained in 1982, uh, to be a psychiatrist at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. So I'm a military trained psychiatrist. They really taught us to be primary care doctors mm. for our patients. Um, we evaluated them. We saw them once, two, three times a week. We did psychotherapy. We did biofeedback was one of my specialties. We, that's why I love heart rate variability training. Um, hypnosis, medication if needed. And then in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the pharmaceutical industry and managed care got together and they went, oh, we can do the therapy for cheaper and we'll make psychiatrists the prescribers and basically condemned psychiatry to the 15 minute med check. Now, I want to know part of that and that's not what we do at Amen Clinics. But Psychiatry is just in this really dark place where they're basically the candy man um, and the prescribers. And I didn't sign up for that. Um, yeah. And it's hard because when you try to change a medical specialty, people hate you. <laughs> Machiavelli in the 15th century actually said, there is nothing more dangerous than trying to change uh, a system that makes money in a certain way. Um, my hope, and what we do at Amen Clinics, is I think psychiatry is really gonna become a four circle specialty. That's my hope, that we're gonna really work to optimize your biology, um, your diet, your hormones, how your brain works. We're gonna look at it too. Right. You know, psychiatrists are the only medical doctors who never look at the organ they treat. That's insane. Right. I'm a psychiatrist. I know how to diagnose insanity. That's insane. There's no other medical specialist that doesn't look at the organ it treats. Um, so that's one of the things we're pioneering. But it's not, just hard, it's not just hardware. You also have to get the software going. Yeah. And that's where teaching people to manage their mind. And, you know, if we just think of heart math, it's a combination of biological and psychological right. uh, programming. And then there's a social circle 
um, teaching people to get along better. Yes. I love that part of my job as a psychiatrist, family therapy. Um, although I do family therapy with scans. It's like, okay, let's get everybody's brain healthy. And then we'll be able to do forgiveness in a much better mm-hmm. way. We'll increase communication in a much better way. And then there's a spiritual circle that most psychiatrists wouldn't touch. But ultimately, it's why do you care? What is your deepest sense of meaning and purpose? And in You Happier, that's actually the seventh secret. Live each day based on clearly defined values, purpose, and goals. Now, you and I are both CEOs of our companies. And, you know, I suspect, like me, you have a business plan. And you have quarterly goals and yearly goals and three to five year goals, but people don't have that for their lives. And when you ask people what they want, they might talk about work. They might talk about getting married. They might talk about money, but they've not really developed a plan for their life because purposeful people, they're happier. They live longer, but there's nowhere in school where people go, let's design your life? How do you want your life to be? Relationships, work, money, physical, emotional, spiritual health. And, you know, it's one of the most powerful exercises in the book. Um, I help people really define what they want. Because if you really want to be happy, you need to make progress toward what's important to you. But if you don't know what's important to you, you will not make progress. Right. Well, that's well said. Well said. We're going to do a heart meditation together like we always do at the end of each podcast on one of the themes of the podcast. And what struck me, what you said is, let's go to our hearts and really get clear. You may already know this, but what's important to you of everything you've heard today and what's important given what's going on in the world in your life, what's one thing that's important that you can be proactive about? So let's get heart coherent first. We'll close with a heart meditation to get our heart and brain in sync, not only to help release any stress, but connect with that, that higher intelligence. So let's focus our attention in the area of the heart. Just imagine your breath is flowing in and out of your heart or chest area. Breathing a little slower and deeper than usual. Find an easy rhythm that's comfortable. Now, as you continue this heart-focused breathing, just make a sincere attempt to experience a regenerative feeling. You'll bring your heart rhythms into more synchronization, such as gratitude or care for someone or something. Just breathe another uplifting feeling that you can connect with, joy, love, or kindness. 
Just breathe that heart quality for a few moments. Allow these quality attitudes lift our perceptions. And ask yourself at this synchronized place, what's important to you? What's most important to you? Or one thing that you could add more heart to that's important to you. Something you could act on that could make a difference, make you happier. Now let's visualize creating together a reservoir of coherent heart energy that each of us can access and dip into as needed over the next month. When we feel stressed or anxious, hopeless or depressed or any of those energies where life or the world has gotten to us, we can go back to the heart and dip into that reservoir of uplifting heart energy and reconnect with our values and what's important to us. And every so often I like to add love energy, care energy, kindness, as qualities, as energies to the reservoir to uplift myself and others. Let's just close this heart meditation by holding in our hearts with compassionate care all the people who are experiencing anxiety, overwhelm, stress during these uncertain times and know that our heart's compassionate care can always help. Thank you for sharing that heart meditation with me. Dr. Amen, any last words for our audience? 
Happiness is a daily practice, just like physical health is a daily practice. You know, for people who are not healthy, there were thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of decisions that went into that. Um, if you want to be happy and really have good mental health, you have to have these simple practices day in and day out. Yep. You've got to do something. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you sharing your experience, your wisdom. And thank you, everyone, for participating in this Ad Heart podcast. Next month's podcast will launch Tuesday, May 17th at 11 o'clock Pacific time. See you there. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Ad Heart podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can catch the latest episodes. If you're wanting even more heart-inspired content, find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Clubhouse, and LinkedIn. Look for HeartMath and also the HeartMath Institute. Both organizations are committed to helping activate the heart of humanity.